Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. It was a brisk March day in 1933. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was giving his inaugural address on the steps of the East Portico in the Capitol building. He was speaking to a nation grappling, still tightly held in the grip of the Great Depression. The most well-known an often quoted line from that speech punctuated by the promise and the possibility of hope is this. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Unnamed, unreasoning, unjustified fear that would paralyze our best needed efforts to transform our retreats into advances. You see, Roosevelt understood well that the real enemy isn't the unemployment rate or economic stagnation, but rather the faith-depleting paralysis that sets in when we give our heart over to fear. Because let's face it, fear and uncertainty is a powerful thing. It strikes me that these two competing emotions are that which drive E.L. Dockworth's novel, City of God. The book is populated with reminiscings and commentaries often attributed to Albert Einstein. One such story has Einstein recounting his experiences as a schoolboy as he intended the Luitpold Gymnasium in Ulm, Germany. His teacher was a gruff man, one who believed in the philosophy of education through tyranny. The instructor's strict adherence to absolute obedience and lockstep discipline, Einstein would later note, had a devastating effect on his classmates. Their creativity was crushed. Their curiosity quelled. Einstein's schoolroom experience varied starkly from the emotions evoked by his study of the violin and his discovery of Euclid's geometry. Now, I must note that both these events occurred outside of the context of the gymnasium. Einstein, enamored by the beauty of the subject matter, devoted himself completely to the music and the logic of the numbers, 
driven only by the joy of what he would find there. If tyranny was subjugation, then the freedom for discovery was an affirmation of the mind and thus its empowerment. The rule of fear, far from empowering the students, had repressed them. Today, we continue our series on the Reformation, aptly entitled, Here We Stand. We do so by looking at the second of Luther's confessional statements, sola fide, or by faith alone. We left the quivering, quaking, and soaked monk last week, crying out to his patron saint, Saint Anne, if you help me, I promise I will become a monk. I guess being struck by lightning has the capacity to evoke certain prayers. There he was. We also learned how he sought refuge from the spiritual thunderstorm in his soul by retreating to the walls of a cloister. And, that, and how that journey would ultimately lead him to, in 1521, stand before the Diet of Worms and in front of kings and popes utter the now famous words, Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. But that's getting ahead of our story. For today, we find young Martin still clothed in monastic garb. A year had passed since his entrance into the monastery at Erfurt. It was by all accounts a placid year, one in which, as Luther would later recount, the devil was extremely silent. His superiors thought that Luther had a vocation to join the priesthood, and therefore had offered him the possibility of performing his first Mass. The ordeal was ostentatious, difficult, for Mass was the primary means by which the church effected its grace. At the communion table, wine and bread became body and blood. And the priest who officiated the miracle of the transformation of the elements had a privilege, position, and power that not even the angels could attain to. So we shouldn't be surprised that on that day, Luther would approach the altar with jumbled emotions that juxtaposed fascination and fear. For this was truly a solemn event. So much so that he invited his father Hans to participate, no doubt hoping that the reunion would provide an opportunity for reconciliation, as the two of them hadn't spoken since Luther left his study of law in order to pursue the monastic life. The ceremony would begin with the chiming of bells in the cloister, followed by a chanting of the psalm, Sing unto the Lord a new song. Then 
Luther would begin to recite the introductory words of the Mass. O Lord, the living, the true, and the eternal, we present ourselves to you, O God. It was upon uttering these words that terror began to course through Luther's body. The horror of the holy, the terror of the infinite. As he recognized and asked the question, how can I, a man made out of dust and ash and full of sin, Stand before the God who spoke the universe into existence. Somehow, Luther got through the Mass and then limply backed away from the altar, his heart crushed by the realization that his heavenly Father remained unapproachable. As he came down from the altar, oh, how he yearned for one word, just one word of encouragement from his earthly father. He sat at a table with Hans, no doubt to share a celebratory meal. There they were, father and son. And the young monk asked the question that had been causing him so much distress over all these years. Father, why are you still angry? When will you forgive my entrance into the monastery? Well, this was too much for old Hans. He could no longer keep his composure and he retorted, You, Martin, a scholar, shouldn't you know that the Bible says, Honor your father and your mother. Why then have you left us? You who were our only help of care and comfort in old age. Well, it's good to know that Parental guilt is not something new with the 21st century. Now, Luther knew the way to respond to this query. It was written in every church manual in black and white. The gospel command to leave both father and mother, wife and child, and dedicate oneself to following God. And so he responded, Oh, Father, don't you know that I can do more good here praying for the souls than out there in the world? And then he continued by offering some evidence, proof, a tale and a story that would cinch the argument. Father, do you remember so long ago, in the midst of a thunderstorm, I heard a voice. I saw a vision. The elder Luther gruffly retorted, Grant, O son, that that was God and not an apparition of the devil. And this 
with tears streaming down his eyes, propelled and launched the young Luther into his Anfechtungen, his dark night of the soul, a period defined by absolute uncertainty. Today I want to ask you, how would you deal with that type of spiritual crisis? Would you open the Bible hoping that Scripture would provide some solace? Would you fast, desiring and believing that negation of food would provide some relief from the feverish and frenzied visions of damnation that continue to assail you? Would you immerse yourself in petition and prayer? Pleading that that might open a passageway from purgatory to paradise. Before you answer the question, remember, the five solas are occasional statements. The five solas are occasional statements. And the young monk used every single tool, both of theology and of faith, that he had at his disposal in that time and place. Historians tell us that Luther would attend confession at least eight times a day. Each one of his confessionals would last around 90 minutes. He would devour volumes of the mystics, praying and hoping that in the pages, the answer and cure for the existential malaise that afflicted him would be found. Finally, the situation grew so desperate that his superiors decided to send him as a special envoy to Rome, hoping that sometime in that holy city, would cure young Martin of that which afflicted him. Upon his arrival at Rome, Luther skipped the frescoes. He had no interest in seeing the Sistine Chapel or the great and ancient ruins of the emperor. Instead, he went to the Santa Scala, a stairway which tradition said led up to Pilate's palace. Church doctrine stated that if a penitent would climb the 28 steps while offering a Lord, the Lord's Prayer, he would gain remission of sins. Luther climbed each of those 28 steps on his knees, vehemently repeating, Pater noster qui est in celis, sanctificetur nomen tuum. Adveniat regnum tuum. And when he finally reached the summit, discouraged, he sighed. What if all of this is for naught? Vows had offered no victory, 
Confession provided no confidence. Petition presented no peace. And so the abbot of the monastery, in a last-ditched effort to save the young monk's soul, commissioned him to go and teach New Testament theology at the University of Wittenberg. Upon his arrival there, Luther's paralyzing fear came faith face to face with Pauline faith. Listen to the tumult in the young monk's heart, the battle raging inside him. He writes in his lectures to the Romans, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation with that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my married would assuage him. Therefore... I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it had become inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So at one point of his life, Luther viewed God as a judge sitting on a rainbow waiting to condemn, and he hated him. But just one encounter with Paul, and he now felt in love. So what was the key? That open paradise portico for Luther. Well, it is found in the, God, in the epistle to the Romans, the first chapter, the 16th and 17th verse. And it reads like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God as revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I love the way New Testament theologian John Murray describes the role that faith plays in the economy of salvation. He writes, Paul says that believers are justified through faith 
and by faith, but never on account of faith. Faith, then, is not itself our justifying righteousness, but rather is the outstretched, empty hand which receives righteousness by receiving Christ. If we understand what Murray is saying, then we might just grasp the passage in Romans. Look at it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it has power for salvation. The Greek word power is dunamis, which is intimately related to our word dynamic. It is almost as if Paul and his grandson Martin are reminding us that the gospel is dynamic. Yes, the dynamic power of God at work in the transformation of lives. And what is faith? Faith is then our commitment to the most clear and pure manifestation of that power, the incarnation. For one can believe in a doctrine, but to have faith, one must place it in a person. The object of our faith is always the subject. Christ and Christ crucified. Maybe that's why a more mature Luther would later say in life, if you ought to preach one thing, preach the cross of Christ. More than anyone else, this man besieged by guilt, understood that at the shadow of of the cross and in the light of the one who paid it all, fear is transformed into fascination. So here we stand, 500 years later, and we ask ourselves the question, has the message of the gospel changed? Is God now calling us to pursue perfection? Church, God is calling us to faithfulness. You see, you and I are walking contradictions. Our reformer brethren would define us as simul justus et peccatore simultaneously declared just while being sinners. We are made whole in his brokenness, strengthened by his weakness, and called to live lives of trust. Trust. That concept reminds me of a story. A young hiker decided to go on a walk. After much travailing, 
he became disoriented and veered off the path. Without paying attention, he stepped over and fell into a precipice. Desperately, he began to flail his arms, hoping to catch something that would save his life. And almost miraculously, a tree branch appeared. Outstretched arms, he grasped it and hung there, clinging for dear life. As he examined his predicament, he began to yell. Is anyone there? Can anyone help me? Can somebody save me? He waited a minute, his words drifting into the air. And almost magically, he heard a response. I am here, and I can save you. Do you want to be helped? Yes, I want to be helped. Please save me. Then you must do one thing, and one thing only. Let go of the branch. The man paused, looked around, saw the gorge below, looked at the mountain top above, and then whimpered, Is anyone else up there? <laughs> Our Adventist church grasps at branches. And sadly, sometimes we continue to ask, is anyone else up there? Is the Sabbath out up there? Is eschatology up there? Is the sanctuary doctrine up there? Is the state of the dead up there? For Pete's sake, is woman's ordination up there? And the voice continues to echo in the air. Let go of the branch. I am your God, and I want to save you. I must have been nine or ten at the time. A preacher had come to our home church to conduct a series of evangelistic meetings. He had spent a week outlining the principles of the gospel. At the end of his time there, he asked a question. He said, how many in the audience are sure they are saved? A deathly silence fell upon the crowd as a few hands timidly and shaking raised up. I remained in my chair, frozen. Surely, I wasn't sure I was saved. After all, there were many sins that I still had not confessed. Many issues that I still possessed. From that moment on, I've had a dream that this church 
the Adventist church, which I love so much, would recover its doctrine of sola fide. And when the question is asked, is there assurance of salvation in the building, every hand might go up. So today I ask you, is there assurance of salvation in the building? Is the doctrine of sola fide important? Well, I happen to think so. It reminds us that salvation is God's work, not ours. We are saved and justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So the question that we ought to ask each other this week, as we celebrate our status as saved sons and daughters of God, is the following. Do we have the courage to allow God to be God? Are we content with our creaturely existence? Oh, I pray. I pray that as we meditate on that question, we might come together next week and boldly confess, here we stand. We can do no other. For in Christ, my hope is found. May God grant us assurance.